want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. Poem was Whitman's word for a man's cock. This poem drooping shy and unseen that I always carry and that all men carry, which comes from a spontaneous me, because uh, I've just added it into my dissertation. Uh, but John wondered how Whitman described to himself the tremor in a man's buttocks as he stepped down towards water, their heart seizing paleness. Again, water, like the myth of Narcissus. Like, what is it about the 28 bathers? What is it about water? For some reason, I do find that there is such an erotic impulse between men with water. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I can now say I'm Dr. Andrew Rimby, which... I was thinking of changing my name on the video, but no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so I'm so excited because I actually am joined with a fellow doctor in humanities, a doctor in 19th century British history. So, you know, history, literature, some intersections, definitely, even though um, I've stepped into the murky water before if I try to claim that I'm doing history. So I always make it clear I'm a literary scholar just because some are very adamant about that. And maybe I'll get into that with my guest um, because I'm joined with Tom Crew, who was born in Middlesbrough in 1989. I love that in his bio, it actually has the year he's born. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I'll say I was born in 1992. Um, and since 2015, he's been an editor at the London Review of Books. He's contributed more than 30 essays on politics, art, history, and fiction. And I can't believe it, but The New Life is actually his first novel. And it feels like he's in the stratosphere of E.M. Farster and so many queer male writers that I've turned to from the Victorian into the modernist period. So I think, you know, your book fits very well on the shelves. Uh, <laughs> That's, icons, very, that's um, very nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm so happy that I contacted you, that I was able to figure out how to contact you since, you know, you do have a Twitter account, which everyone can follow. It's in our show notes. But you, you're not necessarily as visible on social media as, say, I am with my thirst for queer social media content. Um, but I'm just curious, how did this, first of all, The New Life, it's a historical fictional novel. Um, and I always think when you say a historical novel, does it always imply fiction? Well, the word novel, I suppose, implies fiction, unless you're going to go down the Truman Capote, Norman Mailer route. Um, so, yes, I would say, but I, I actually don't really like the term historical novel or historical fiction. I don't, I would rather be seen as just writing fiction and a novel rather than being immediately put into a category uh, which might 
put people off or 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 or, or, or I don't know. Or, or it just seems to suggest that I'm making a particular kind of effort, uh, which I don't think I am. Um, mm. That's that's well, by the bell. And it's so fascinating because the reason I asked that is Tom knows I've used the new life now in my dissertation and actually comes when I introduce John Addington Simmons. So John Addington Simmons is our main squeeze here in the new life. Uh, he is fictionalized, but you know, I'll call you a fictional, a fiction writer, Tom Crew, the fiction writer. Um, yes. But John Addington Simmons is a Victorian sexologist. And I thought it was just so interesting how timely your novel is because like my thirst for John Addington Simmons really came from Whitman's 2019 uh, 200th birthday. And like in 2019, I had done a Whitman and Oscar Wilde talk in, at Brooklyn Public Library. Now I have a Whitman and Queer Theory article that begins with John Addington Simmons. And like, what was it for you that sparked your interest? Like, how did you even know who John Addington Simmons was? Well, I... Well, I didn't to begin with. And um, what happened was it was 10 years ago. And I, I think you're right that Simmons's profile has grown in the last decade. It does feel like he's having more of a moment. Uh, and, you know, there's this new book, the first kind of full scale book about him by uh, an academic called Shane Butler, which is the first since the early 60s. Um, where with Phyllis Grosskurt's biography came out in the early sixties, and so we've got this this big new book. We've got um, all of this kind of new queer studies stuff is bringing him in. But ten years ago, when I came across his name, I was reading a biography of Oscar Wilde, uh, Richard Elman's biography of Oscar Wilde, just out of interest. And it's so long ago that I can't quite place the the moment but i i think i must have come across he must have been mentioned in the text or mentioned in a footnote and it clearly there was something and i've never gone back to check but there was clearly something there that caught my attention about this other gay man at the end of the 19th century in britain and i remember that very quickly i ordered grosskirth's biography got a second-hand copy and read it super fast read it in two days flat or something and was just completely gripped by by this this character and really it was the sense of why did I not know about this man before why did I not know about this other gay figure who unlike Wilde was so articulate about what it meant to be a gay man living at that time well and shout out to Shane Butler actually because he was on a conference I create I uh, created last year for the queer history conference in San Francisco so I know Shane um, and his work. And it actually was all about classical Victorian homoeroticism, like, or actually, I think it was, yes. And a lot of the focus was on ancient Greece and how it's used, because that's what my work is on. I'm really interested in, look, why is ancient Greece this foundation? And for the longest time, scholars, Whitman scholars hadn't looked at ancient Greece because they took Whitman at his word. Um that he didn't have a direct allusions to literature, which is so untrue. And like I explore, like there is a lot of Greek mythology in his work that you just have to look under the surface. Like I remember Simmons talks about in his first letter in 1871 to Whitman, 
that there's an echo and a faint of um, ancient Greece. And like the word echo already implies the myth of Narcissus. And I find it so interesting. Simmons keeps this like seed planted of, okay, I'm going to figure out the queerness in Whitman's work. Like I want him to have the speech act. I want him to have this declarative statement, which, you know, Whitman, unlike so many, they think that John Addington Simmons and Whitman were at tension, which is not true at all. Like there's like the one letter at the end of Whitman's life. But other than that, they have at least a 10 year friendship. Like this is a long uh, uh, pen pal type relationship or fandom, right? I mean, Simmons is sending a love and death, his poem to Whitman. He's inspired so much that he actually sets it in ancient Greece. And I mean, Tom, what was it like for you to actually, because I know you had to read through, you have a whole acknowledgement section, which I so appreciate at the end of the Simmons biographies, of his letters, of the archives that you rely on. Like, mm. you know, what did you discover in this process of the archive? Hi, I'm interrupting what I know is a riveting discussion because I have to talk to you all about one of our sponsors, Broadview Press. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher for all of your humanities-related book needs. Make sure first that you use an exclusive code they're only giving to us for Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. The code is Ivory Tower, and you get 20% off your broadviewpress.com order. So some of the books you can get, actually, we've had the writers on our very own Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Have you all heard our sound writing episode with doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez? So sound writing, they discuss first, what does that term mean? How do you use digital media projects in the college classroom? Also, how do we interpret and analyze podcast episodes like our very own ivory tower boiler room and we break down all of the different podcast genres and just how we're using media in our own lives and especially if you're teaching media and we even bring up artificial intelligence which i know is a hot button issue right now also make sure you listen to jeffrey dr jeffrey weinstock who talks about being a mad scientist of sorts as a composition scholar. And he talks about what it means to do pop culture research and teaching in the college classroom. Then in the fall, we had Dr. Ann Stevens on to break down what it means to be a literary theorist. And we even play a really fun literary criticism game where Ann uses all of these different theories to approach the Wizard of Oz film. So it's such an enjoyable episode. We love having the Broadview Press sponsor our podcast. And again, use that code Ivory Tower for 20% off all of your Broadview Press texts. I can't wait to feature a really exciting episode with Broadview Press about the philosophy of sport. So that Stay tuned is coming up in our summer season. Well, I mean, I'm, certainly what one thing that the novelist has to do that the historian 
or the scholar does not is they have to at some point leave the research behind, leave the facts behind, um, or you know, alchemize the facts into something else, in, into a fiction, into a drama. Mm-hmm. So, to some extent, it was it was about immersing myself in Simmons, in in Havelock Ellis, who is the basis of my other main character. Um, in this kind of world of Victorian sexology and theories about what homosexuality was, what it meant, why it existed. It was about sort of delving into all that, but then also having the confidence and the courage to leave it behind, knowing enough that I could almost forget about it um, and just try and tell my story. So that's the kind of broad the broad picture. I just, and I, and I, don't, I don't want to... Um, pose as an as an expert I'm not you I'm sure you have much more expertise than I do I'm very much an amateur I uh I I have a PhD in 19th century history but it's nothing to do with any of this and so I was I was reading through the 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 obvious sources the books I could find the the articles um and it was it was just this case of trying to immerse myself in a different order of being different way of thinking to to get to the point where it would seem instinctive to me what a kind of Simmons person might think about this or that how he might perceive the world um so a big thing for Simmons was knowing the way Simmons appreciated art and renaissance arts statuary you know a lot of the time focusing on the male body the representation of the male body the way he perceived that and also knowing his poetry the way he describes and discusses and centers the male body it was then obvious that my john character who is adapted from simmons is not a in any way a direct representation of simmons but is a simmons kind of character that he would perceive the world in these kind of sexualized, aestheticized um, ways that he would respond to the male body as he perceived it day to day on the streets, uh, you know, at the river, watching the swimmers at the serpentine. Mm-hmm. So the, his whole, so in my book, his kind of whole gaze is is filtered through sexuality and um, physical response and aesthetical appreciation. Well, and I don't want you to sell yourself short. I mean, Tom, what's amazing to me is your work is so groundbreaking because it's the type of work that we really need right now in arts and culture, which is, in my opinion, the fictive academic, like the fictive genre of something so inspired by the archive and that there's these creative leaps you take in your basing adaptation um, I know you have to be careful when you say this because you don't want it to come across as historical record. Um, and I think, though, what's so exciting is the new life could play on a stage. I could see that. It can play in a film. I could see that, definitely. And I'm sure there's discussions happening as all, you know, novels that get a lot of buzz. There's the <laughs> rights being acquired and... um I know how hard it is uh, mm. for it to make that next stage. But what's so exciting to me, Tom, is you've shown academics like myself, like you even being on this podcast and show is what we need for the public to see is, okay, well, this is what's behind the scenes of so much 
attention to the archive or, you know, because there's so much um, gatekeeping, not intentionally, but just accessing scholarly research that's published because of paywalls and, you know, they only get shared a, a, among a certain coterie. And I think a lot of that is changing, definitely. And your work is doing that, like saying to academics, okay, well, let's now look into the archive. You know, mm -hmm. where did Tom get his inspiration? That I definitely am going to teach your novel when I have the chance to do another 19th century queer-centered course, because you really look into eroticism in a way that to me shows Simmons, like Wilde's, Victorian expert, I mean, not Victorian, sorry, ancient Greek and um, classics expertise. Like they're not Whitman. I mean, Whitman is so, like what I find is he's so at tension with education. Like he's reading translations of Homer, like that the everyday person would if they're interested in the classics, which already I think is, you know, symptomatic of Whitman being an autodidact in a way, but he's not a scholar. Like Whitman is does not know Greek, unlike Simmons, unlike Wilde. So like, how did you find this tension between this transatlantic tension? Because there is the British type of queer aesthetic, and then there's this American aesthetic. Well, I suppose what's What's um? Well, I'm I'm glad you've you've said all that. And I was speaking at an event last night, and I said something similar that I I I sort of don't want to claim, or I don't really believe that my book is a is an attempt to, or it's certainly not a self conscious attempt to give voice to people whose voices were lost or repressed, partly because someone like Simmons did an awful lot of talking and writing about himself, and gave gives his own wonderful record of his of his life. So I, I don't see myself as having that kind of um, restorative, almost political purpose. I really was just trying to write a good novel. But one of the things I wanted to do, and I hope that the novel does do, is redirect people's attention to the past, uh, to all the historical work that's been done and that can be accessed. And that, that will be a wonderful effect of the novel. If, if the novel both entertains and, you know, gives pleasure as a novel, but also might encourage some people to think, oh, well, I'd love to know a bit more about the kind of, you know, the real life stuff behind this, then that's a complete victory. That's, that's a, that's a triumph. Um, and but going on to your, to your second point, I think one of the interesting things is actually how, and one of the things I hope I sort of bring out in the novel is, how actually someone like Simmons or Wilde are aesthetes, they are um, intellectuals, they are very refined characters, but they are simultaneously drawn to this ideal of the natural, uh, the Greek, and the Greek and the natural are sort of equated. I mean, this is why people... Um, called Whitman's poetry Greek, said it evoked a Greek spirit because it was so bodily, because it was mm. kind of stripping out all this kind of Christian um, rhetoric and morality that had been constructed around physicality uh, and sort of restoring this very Greek sense of being at balance with your your human body and appreciating the human body as, a, as an object. Um, this idea that if you have a healthy body, you have a healthy mind, you have a 
yes. a healthy body equals a healthy culture and so so what's actually interesting is that there is always this pull that the the esthetes intellectuals are, are actually being pulled always towards something much more unintellectual towards the body towards nature towards the body in nature the, that it's it's actually about leaving all that behind which of course explains and underpins the way some of these men are so drawn to working class men they they see these working class men as more natural as more bodily as more um at home in in themselves and that they are are because they're lacking culture because they lack all this constructed morality and all this anxiety that they are kind of more truly human and of course that is a an interesting attitude and it can be very progressive this kind of Whitmanite democratic ideal that you know it's enabling cross-class relationships and it's about comradeship and that's wonderful but of course there is also something dubious about this you know it's it's patronizing it's um it's clearly sexually charged it's it's clearly not just about idealism and and Whitmanite thinking it really is you know sexual and actually getting off on the class distinction not not you know uh submerging the distinction but actually in a way fetishizing the distinction mm -hmm. and getting off on that so so I think that's all going on that's it's those things are actually in constant dialogue the the intellectual and the unintellectual and it, and it actually underpins in a way the entire of my book and this whole historical moment i think and no thank you for that i mean it's all quite subversive in my analysis like my take is whitman and wild share something even though their education is at odds um right wild um writes the picture of Dorian Gray after he's been after he's seen Whitman twice in Camden. And something that I find in wild adaptations, right? There are a lot more, not a lot, but there's a lot more wild fictional accounts. I've seen a play um with Rupert Everett and but they never they're always interested in the trial. I still am waiting for a fictional account of wild in his like Greek youth, his Greek days, when he was that college student, when he was just eager. And I think it would be very different without the Bosey connection. Yeah. And the picture of Dorian Gray, I find fascinating because it's so subversive. It's, I know you don't deal with the picture of Dorian Gray, but, um, or, you know, as, you know, it's not the Simmons connection, but ancient Greek mythology makes such an appearance um, Dorian is called Narcissus a lot of times. And in my opinion, it's actually pederastia gone wrong. Like this is not, it's the ancient Greek system turned askew. Like what happens is Dorian is not supposed to succumb to his beauty. He's not supposed to become Narcissus. He's supposed to just submit and he doesn't submit. Um, but that's my own take of what happens, but where Whitman actually presents the idyllic vision of comradeship, like you said, he presents in a way pederastia gone right. And mm -hmm. there's a lot mm -hmm. of issues with it, uh, with consent, with age, but it's all there. Like you've said, the working class fetishism, there's a racialized fetishism 
with Whitman, especially, he's very interested in white bodies, white bellies bulging, and black bodies are seen in a very primal sexual urge type of way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think it's so important that you bring that up, Tom, that there's this subversive or even there's problematics with these visions. And I mean, Simmons himself distinguishes in sexual inversion that, you know, Simmons, he is the proper homosexual. Uh, mm. He is not like the effeminate or this other group of the working class. And I've always found that ripe for discussion. Like, mm. and you, you know, why do you think it's so important to address? Like, like you said, you're not holding Simmons up as the martyr. Like, this is not like even with me with Whitman, this is not okay. We're now going to embody their ethics of homoeroticism. Hmm. Well, why does it feel important? I suppose just because it. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Do you know that when I'm not delivering an epic Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to you all, that I do actually go on to other podcasts and other interview shows. Well, one show that I really have to tell you all about is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. I know so many of you here love classic films. You love queer concepts and analyses. So let me just give you a few of the episodes that are on That Old Gay Classic Cinema. First, you have to listen to the first ever episode they did where I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. So yes, it's an epic Sound of Music episode. There's a Gone with the Wind episode, The Wizard of Oz, Cinderella, 101 Dalmatians, Sleeping Beauty, and most recently, I and Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia, we were invited onto the Alfred Hitchcock Vertigo episode. So make sure you follow That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Instagram and on TikTok. Christian Garcia, the host, I know that he would really love if you listen to his podcast, follow it, 
on Apple and Spotify. Make sure that you rate and review it. And I think I'll definitely be back on that old gay classic cinema. So I'll keep you all updated. But after you finish listening to this current Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode, get your ears on that old gay classic cinema. Enjoy you all. Again, you know, a, a novelist is always looking for complexity as a as a historian is, as a literary scholar is. You know, it's it, you would be a bad version of each of those things if you if you tried to take the most um, simple reading. It's it's instinctive to try and search for nuance and search for, um, you know, the the sharp edges. So in a way, it would have been sort of cowardly and and morally stupid to uh to avoid those to avoid those issues and um and yet in a way I thought that was sort of what was happening in the sense that I was the big thing that really got me thinking about the novel was discovering Simmons discovering what Simmons represented what he was trying to do trying to actually write these books try and get reform change the law change social, social attitudes and I was sort of stunned that this is the man we've forgotten, or how, that's how it felt to me at the time. This is the man who has no standing or status in popular culture. And yet we idolise Wilde and all gay men are told to, you know, or feel that Wilde is their, you know, brother, uncle, grandfather. We feel like he is the line we draw on. We 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 are in the line of the martyr, not in the line of, Simmons, who was doing something different. And I thought, actually, what happened to Wilde was very largely self-inflicted, uh, you know, leaving out the kind of big structural issues. And I suddenly saw that he had brought this disaster on himself and it had had all these terrible side effects and kind of, you know, blown the sort of Simmons, Edward Carpenter, Ellis project mm-hmm. out of the water. And that this moment, the 1890s, had actually been a period of great optimism, not a great, not a period of great darkness. That is what we now think. So, I was, I was frustrated by the kind of simplicity of the story we were being told, where and the simplicity of the way Wilde's story was being told. Um, so I wanted to to show both. I kind of wanted. I had a kind of cheeky. Um, perverse urge to sort of cast Wilde as the villain, and you know what do we? What does this story look like if we push Wilde out of the center of the story, and we tell a story about gay people in the eighteen nineties in which Wilde does not feature directly, um, but also if everyone's relationship to Wilde is generally negative, you know what will that? What will that do? And so, so that was important, but it was also then equally important to complexify the picture for the Simmons Carpenter style people. It, it wasn't enough to then suddenly say, and here are the good guys, because clearly they were not completely innocent either. And I was very aware also of the kind of very simplistic um, idolization of E.M. Forster's Morris, which yes. again seemed to be just celebrated in, as a kind of queer classic and um again as, as a sort of inheritance that all gay people should be you know grateful for and i thought well actually morris is a real expression of the kind of simmons carpenter ideology whitman ideology 
it's a simplistic expression of that where Morris runs off with a gardener and you know and all most things are happy ever after and it, we don't we don't find out what it would have been like for those two men to try and have a relationship we don't see the dark side of the picture so another thing I immediately wanted to do in the novel was sort of I remember even writing this in when I made the proposal to my agent you know a kind of reverse Morris you know the kind of dark side of Morris you know um try and try and show that moment with more complexity and and difficulty so mm-hmm. all in all that became the project of the whole book to try and create a very complicated nuanced look at this moment in history this society and not to make easy heroes not to have saints to just try and show in all sorts of ways how a homophobic culture warps everyone in different and strange ways yeah well have you read william de conzio's alec and beth ann roberts my policeman no i have not oh okay well i've had them both on beth ann roberts uh my policeman is a take on Ian farster and his relationship with the policeman and then um i Alec is this like the b- backstory behind who Alec Scudder is and taking away the privileging of Morris. So definitely very interesting novels. Yep. And um, there's but what's so interesting is you all really are like we are all in a way part of this overall discussion, which I think it's fair to say the inheritance of sexology, the Victorian sexology specifically Right. I mean, from all of the reading you did with Simmons and Ellis and Carpenter, it takes a while for the public to know what's happening behind the scenes. Like, it's not as if right away in the in the 1890s, the public says, oh, that's what a homosexual is. Like, it Mm -hmm. really doesn't take until World War Two. Like Kinsey, I would say, really starts this public discussion. Like, why do you think it's such, there's this um, tension between, or not tension, but just a long time lapse between what's happening in this new emerging scientific field, right? And I, we could start with Kraft Ebbing um, and Psychopathia Sexualis, uh, but from that period up until, say, like the 1940s, like, why do you think this nomenclature, so to speak, of naming takes such a long time? Well, I, it's such a complicated subject. And again, I am no, no true expert. I mean, my, my, my perception is that there are always words. There have always been words. I mean, you know, you, you might not have had homosexual, but you had sod or sodomite. You had, Nancy, fairy, puff, you know, there were always words. There was always the sense that there were mollies, you know, there were people who behaved in a certain way. Um, and that didn't necessarily crystallize into the same set of meanings that attached to the word homosexual. But um, I, my my sort of human instinct um which is in a way a kind of unintellectual instinct is is 
but also is a kind of commonsensical thing is that mm. uh, you know these people existed most people knew that they existed i mean there's a book called i'm looking as if it's on my let's see if it's on my shelf um is it called unnatural offenses by yes it called hg cox hg cox yes, yes. The, wonder, the wonderfully named and <laughs> uh you know he makes the point that actually far from being unnamed this offense was being constantly discussed in the papers you know they were court cases were being reported fairly openly in the press and so it was not that it was it was not that it was not present in people's lives it was just that the language was being evaded or that there was a different kind of language that existed so the term homosexual may not have acquired um any great popularity until the 40s but i I don't think that implies a lack of public consciousness you know Mm -hmm. and that's and i do think wilds the wild trial and wild's downfall did give a kind of language or or a set of imagery for people to work with uh and it, i think that was very influential this idea of though it was not by any means the only gay scandal around that time but it, it did give the kind of set of tropes you know the the age difference relationships the working class middle class relationships the theatricality the campness the the sense of uh, a gay man dressing and talking differently being performative you know i think a lot of that stuff it has a long history and there are there are pre- precedents for that but i think it did help give a particular image for what we would later call the homosexual but you know there's obviously the famous line from from morris you know i'm i'm an unspeakable of uh of the oscar wilde type and you know, he doesn't need to say anything different. He can say Oscar Wilde and people know what he means. He says mm. the word unspeakable, even as he is, in fact, speaking. So it's sort of like there is always a code there, I think. And and obviously the people knew a lot, you know, people knew people, people knew people who knew people. Yeah, I, I just think it, it was a culture that was mm-hmm. in a way much more open and, and permeable than we might stereotypically think. In my um, analysis, like ancient Greek concepts with Simmons, Wild, Carpenter, I mean, they're all turning to it. Whitman, even in its absentia, though he like declares it's not part of his poetics, it's all a circulating concept for the language that hasn't yet existed for what they're seeing as male-male desire. But is it unfair to say that Oscar Wilde is one of the best PR agents? Because in my opinion, the trial, the love that dare not speak is its name when he declares this, is a PR branding. I mean, like you've said, Wilde is used by Morris. Like, Wilde is used as an evocation, as a, not the person, but just as a concept. And like, that to me says, Wilde did a pretty damn good job of creating a branding. And I mean, he did that <laughs> on his American lecture tour. Um, this is where I think Whitman and him get along. Whitman has been called one of the first influencers. And I think it's true because Whitman knew how to talk about his brand. And in my opinion, Simmons was really testing Whitman in the letters. Like Simmons was having Whitman declare that he is a homosexual, which Whitman has never agreed to, like never writes down. And even Simmons doesn't yet really 
is it fair to say hasn't really yet solidified what homosexual means at that point. So it's, he's kind of like, okay, so Calamus is this manly love, this athletic love, this warrior love. It's about men wanting to have sex with men, right? Like that's what he's trying to get to. And Whitman finally, I think, just realizes if he writes this down, he saved all his letters. The press is going to find out about it. It's going mm -hmm. to hurt his legacy if he says yes. Because before that, he's had such a cordial conversation with Simmons. I mean, there's this love between them. So it, it seems like Whitman was trying to protect his brand in a mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, That's how I read all of this. Yes, and, and Whitman was not... Um, as is pointed out in my in my novel, I mean Whitman was not shy about you know cracking on to some of these, cracking on being a bit, very English phrase I'm sure. Um, it was not uh, shy, you know, when Edward Carpenter visited him, you know, Carpenter came back and said we went to bed together, and so he obviously thought there were things he could get away with in person that he couldn't on the page, which is very sensible of him. I mean, going back to Wilde, I, I think. Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends, you've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E -E, Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Tama Finlan all have 
really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer, and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. What's interesting about Wild are you completely a, a shrewd and, and brilliant self-publicist, uh, perhaps one of the best ever. But I don't know about the, the trial. He, I mean, he certainly created a set of of images and and a, a mythology. I mean, you know, um, I, f- I forget, I've forgotten the name of well, his famous, no, famous no, letter to, to, to Douglas um, uh, from prison. Oh, oh, oh um, yes. Oh, it's going to come to me. Oh my! I know. <laughs> Look, I should see, know this. Two experts. But, um, um, anyway, but that, but you know that that whole the whole way he kind of um, dresses up wonderfully the the trial and and the relationship and everything. But actually, you know, I think the love that speaks is the dare not speak his name was was Bosey's phrase. Anyway, it's from one of Bosey's mm-hmm. poems, and I think it's one of the things I was again quite kind of irritated by and provoked by. You know, while is actually not a good PR man for homosexuality in that in that trial case, really, because he refuses to admit that he's gay, denies it the whole way through, denies the relationships with these men, um, you know, and it invokes these kinds of idealised David and Jonathan, Plato. Um, he invokes that kind of desperately as a, as a way of justifying these relationships he's been discovered as having, that they are not sexual, they are not gay they are they are simply mm-hmm. this 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 and that that that's you know it it's a mode it's a it's a rhetoric but it's not to me a very um wonderful or positive defense of homosexuality and i think you get that much more reading you know simmons's books about homosexuality have much more modern seeming much more tangible fresh um declarations common sense assertions about homosexuality that make a lot more sense now to us uh, than anything that Wilde said and should be much better known and, and and celebrated because he's the one that's really speaking the language of today, not Wilde. Yes, yes. Oh, you were talking about De Profundis. De Profundis, yes. That's right. Yes, yes. Um, I don't delve into Wilde's trial. Um, that's for part, that's for my second book. My first book is Mm-hmm. Whitman's homoerotic poetics. And then my second book is supposed is going to be, I'm gonna manifest it, but it's going to be the queer Victorian readers. So, you know, oh, we'll nice. get to that. Yeah. Um yeah, no, my dissertation, it's called The Pool of Narcissus. So uh Whitman's homoerotic poetics. But 
you know, I love everything you're saying, Tom, because I think, well, first of all, I've loved your work so much. Uh, but what I find is so interesting, right? And there's a moment I have to draw everyone's attention. Page um, 21, it's in part one. It comes very early. You realize right away that Tom does not uh, mince words around eroticism. And we're going <laughs> to get a lot of phallic-centered language. And I absolutely love it. But <laughs> here it says, uh, right, Simmons is in a way analyzing Whitman's poetry. And this thought comes to him very Mrs. Dalloway-like. I did find a lot of that stream of consciousness was done really brilliantly. So bravo, Tom. Um, you. you know, so it says, um, poem was Whitman's word for a man's cock. This poem drooping shy and unseen that I always carry and that all men carry, which comes from a spontaneous me, because uh, I've just added it into my dissertation. Uh, but John wondered how Whitman described to himself the tremor in a man's buttocks as he stepped down towards water, their heart seizing paleness. Again, water, like the myth of Narcissus. Like, what is it about the 28 bathers? What is it about water? For some reason, I do find that there is such an erotic impulse between men with water. Like, what mm. is it for you? Why do you think water is this, <laughs> gets the cock to rise or just causes this sensation? Is it the nudity aspect that's possible? I think, you know, do you know the wonderful uh, anecdote that apparently Rupert Brooke, his party trick was to be able to jump into water and emerge with an immediate erection. So no. that's just a little, just a little nugget for you there. Uh, well, I, I, I think it's, it's almost certainly the fact that this is the only time when you know most men would would bathe naked um, up until the twentieth century, and and it's the the time when you would be um, exposed to, to to male bodies in in significant numbers. It was a it was a kind of public public display and and of course that therefore it would be very eroticized um that it's it's an opportunity and it's so therefore water and the and you know and the light and the air the freshness the you know that these places are often in kind of wooded um or green enclosures so i you know i think there's just a it you know it wraps up and again it you know it as it does in my novel it of course for john it evokes it evokes Greece. It evokes the Greeks. It's this kind of idyllic um, scene, and I suppose there's also something Edenic about it. You know, it's it is the time before shame. It's the it's the mm. um, nudity, as I say in the novel. You know, something like nudity carelessly worn. It's 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 um, it's pure simplicity. It's all it's all of that stripped out, and and the water is a kind of clean. You know, there's a cleansing aspect. There's a purifying associations that, you know, I think it all, it can, it can all work in that, in that sort of magical way. Yeah. Well, and like, I've talked a lot about, well, Jack Parlett and I are spirit animals. Uh, I don't know if you know Jack Parlett's work, but his book, The Poetics of Cruising and Fire Island, they are wonderful. Had him on a few times. And I always talk to him about how I love Fire Island and how empowered I felt being nude on the beach there. And I'll be back 
I always go back. Um, I live 25 minutes away, so I'm lucky. Okay. <laughs> and, um, but there is a community built of artists. Like it's not sex. Like I always have to explain that to the straight friends or community of mine that it's not just about sex. It's like what you said. There's an aesthetic. There's right for Simmons. He even thinks Whitman's comradeship. It's not about the sex and the body only. It's about politics. It's about virtues, which is all Greek, right? That's basically what filial means. Like in its root is this affection, the affection between men. It's the virtues. And that's what the gymnasium was, which means nude. That's what um, the symposium is supposed to be celebrating. But again, it's all very upper echelon men. And I think it's glad, like it's important that you really look into that in your work because it's something to aspire to. And not everyone can reach the Fire Island destination because of cost, right? Like there's barriers in this mm -hmm. vision. Mm -hmm. um, there's the problematics of consent, right? It's it's not like the baggage doesn't follow. It's it's the ideal. That's why it's an ideal. It's out yeah. of reach, yeah. right? Well, Even for the ancient Greeks, it was out of reach. I mean, yeah. let's not kid ourselves. Well, I, I think what I think one of the things that maybe is different about, you know, the period I'm writing about is that in a way it was democratic because these were, you know, this is a river in a, it's not a, it's called a river, but it's not really a river in the Serpentine near Hyde, in Hyde Park, but it's actually an artificial body of water. But it, you know, it was available to all. It's a public space and, you know, it's like, the Hampstead bathing ponds in Hampstead in London still have a, a gay charge because they it's actually the fact that they are accessible that's um also allows in my novel someone like John to kind of wander along and look like he's not looking as though he's just sat in the park reading his book so it's it's also it's also these places where you know like swimming pools lidos you know why do all these places have this kind of association i think it's because they enable a kind of looking that might not be possible in in other places and it, it is a a kind of accessible looking that you can maybe disguise you maybe you're there just for a swim but maybe you're not you know um, oh tom crew is just beginning yes this is the end of part one but guess what everyone i'm giving you all part two on saturday so you only have a few days to wait so there's so much more to come about Victorian sexology, Tom's thoughts on why John Addington Simmons and Henry Havelock Ellis turned to Walt Whitman for an explanation of male-male same-sex desire. Why Whitman? Why his poetry? This is just the beginning. I can't wait for you all to hear part two. And while you're waiting, why don't you listen to Mary's recent True Crime and Academia episode? Or look at our male homoerotic episodes on literature, art, uh, TV. There's so much to listen to with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So thank you all for listening. And I can't wait for you all to hear the rest of what Tom has to say. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. 
I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime in Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime in Academia on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, too. Remember our TikTok. That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime in Academia content. All the video interviews are on our Patreon. All of our bonus episodes are on Patreon. And it just means so much for you to join for $5 a month. You unlock all of our bonus episodes. And also, it just helps support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much for giving Mary and I a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee. Thanks for the $5. Head to patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week. And have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now.